Okay, ladies and gentlemen, one more time. We're gonna get through this, okay? One more time. Just listen up, right? One more time. Gonna, gonna, gonna walk you through it. If you are at a live show and an artist is saying the N-word and you know you don't have to say it, don't say it. In the words of Public Enemy's Chuck D, bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in circumstances. Alright, so I feel like some context is needed. <laughs> Imagine if I just said that and then just, just carried on with life. Alright, um, so uh, it's Wednesday. Um, I, usually, I usually don't record this late. I'm recording like a nine. Um, and um, uh, I, I just uh, got back from London uh, to see uh, Denzel Curry, um, a rough trade east, um, signed a little thing for me, uh, had my, put my name, and also Chuck, uh, which nobody calls me, and uh, I hope to fuck nobody ever does uh, for the rest of the time, uh, but yeah, he put that on, on the card, and it was funny, um, and uh, hopefully he should get his album as well, um, some point in the next, uh, probably the end of September, which I'm gassed for, I can't wait, can't wait, um, so yeah. It was good, um, good show, you know what I mean, just, you know, it, was in, it was in a, it's in a record shop, you know, cause it can't exactly be too hype, but it was, it was fine, um, he talked to us for a bit, asked some questions, people ask some shit questions, man, it's just like, when are you gonna work ne- next with Ski Mask, when, when, when are you gonna work with Kenny Beats again, no, it's just, uh, just the most basic ass questions, bro, like, Jesus Christ, like, be, get creative or something, man, people asking the wackest questions. Anyway, um, but yeah, he 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 was there, and uh, obviously the first track he did was "Walking," and um, a couple like you know ten or so minutes after that, he was like, uh, uh, "Who who said who who actually said the N word?" Because um, uh, you know, it it sounded like a lot of people said it, and there's not enough homies out there to be saying it, right? Um, so you know, it was a bit of you know, it's banner on his side, right? He's he's trying to you know just you know, just uh, be bannerous and that's fine, right, I get it, but let's be real, right, it's a conversation worth having, and I have had this conversation before, um, I've actually put it on wax, I've had it on a, I had an article about it a few years ago, um, yeah, it's on the fifth element if you want to go dig for it, but, um, I've had this conversation before, and funny enough, I was on the way back, and I was listening to the Danny Brown show, um, Danny Brown, another rapper for those that don't know, and he had, nearly the exact same conversation um or the exact same subject matter anyway um he went about it in i think it was in within the context of free speech right but he was basically saying he he's he as a rapper he believes that um you know he just sometimes just likes to say it because it's fine on a track and again i'm cool with that right but it's when he says something along the lines i'm paraphrasing but something along the lines of you can say it if you want to um, but people have the right to slap you, slap shit out of you if you do say it, right? And obviously, when you're alone in your car, you know that that co- that goes back to the uh, Chris, the old Chris Rock bit. Um, you know when um uh <laughs> when he's he's singing Dre and uh, you know Pete and the white dudes in the car on his own, and you know he's he's gonna he's gonna shout that Good street on these. Da, 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 yeah, you've seen you've seen it. Um, it's a classic it's a classic bit. But yeah, I. 
my stance, and I feel like this is, I think, the best stance to have. Um, I just go for it, right? Free, you know, free creativity, of course. I'm never going to restrain an eyes to not say the word, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I, I ain't that type of person, right? But, just know, just know, white person, if you are listening and you are like this, just know the artist did not make the song for you. Right? Let's, 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 let's break it down a little bit, okay? So... You feel entitled to say it because your favourite artist said it. And you want to say the lyrics for whatever reason. Okay, right? Fine. Sure. Go for it. Why do you think you deserve that pass? Why, why do you think of it as like a hall pass? Why, why, why do you see it as that? You know what I mean? Because the, the artist wasn't thinking of you when he, was, when he or she was writing that. You know what I mean? They, they, they're not writing with you in mind. They're not writing lyrics, right, to say... Oh, I can't wait for all my white fans to shout nigger at me. Like, it's, it's, they, they're not writing for you. They're not making songs for you. Okay. Now, do I have to be specific on for you? Do I have, do, do I have to be? I will if I have to. Okay. I don't mean that you can't listen to it because you're white. Obviously, I'm not going down that road. Okay. But, the lyrics aren't with you in mind. You know, I'm saying that as a person that just can't say it or shouldn't say it as, I, as, as I'll, I'll rephrase, right? You shouldn't say it. You can if you want. Free speech or go for it, bro. But again, in the same, ver- in the, in a similar vein as Danny Brown, people have the right to slap the shit out of you if you do, okay? But just don't use it. Just don't do it, and there's no beef. There is no... Like, why do why do people have, like, a fucking vein popping out of their head when they, when they feel like they just... Oh, I can't say it! I can't Chill out. Chill out. It's, it's one word. Just mute yourself right quick. Boom. It's, it's literally, like, half a second of mute. It, you know what I mean? It used to gotta what? Let a real talk. That's it. Right there. Let a real talk. Boom. What was that? A, a millisecond, <laughs> like let a real talk, boom, done, easy. It's so, it's not hard, okay. Anyway, I'll reframe, I'll chill because I feel like I've made my point. They're not writing with you in mind, okay. They're just not. They're really not. I I I like. I know some people like to think, you know, the the the, you know, the artists are thinking of them or whatever. And, oh my god, this track is so me. It's like no, it's not. It's not. It's them. It may be things to do with their lives, right? Maybe things about people they know. But it probably, most likely, is not about you, okay? Just so you know. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Anyway, let's jump right into the show. We have two film, uh, sports and film and, and TV, uh, specifically. Four minutes before we begin. Email to this call link, all that, all that, all that. I like how I take a deep breath before I do this now. <laughs> All that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go pick the articles for yourself and give them read. Give them read and support the writers and make this show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop. And let's get into the show. (laughs) 
In a week where Pakistan, Pakistan, I'm trying to say it right now, Pakistan, uh, suffer flash floods affecting millions. Uh, Facebook settles on the Cambridge Analytica lawsuit. Uh, Moderna is suing rival company Pfizer and BioNTech. Uh, for allegedly copying its technology behind the development of the first COVID-19 vaccines. Notting Hill Carnival comes and goes, and um, I'm going to probably... Uh, I mean, I could have easily told what, how... <laughs> I did go to Notting Hill Carnival, by the way. Um, that was fun. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I might talk about it next week, depending how, on how the news is going, because there's just a lot of negative news about it right now, and I want to see it pan out. Um, I don't know if it's just people saber-rattling right now, um, but yeah, I want to leave it a week, um, it just, uh, just to see if I can get a story on it, because there's a lot of stupid, um, opinions about it going around, um, so yeah, anyway. And lastly, the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, or Gorbachev, uh, dies aged 91. But we begin, uh, with the first of two, uh, film, uh, uh, uh segments, Oh, lost my words there, and um, it's a homie, shout out to the boy Ryan, dropped this today, and uh, he, he hyped it up, and um, I really wanted to get in on this, and uh, give it a read, uh, on Wax, because I just, uh, and, and he knows this, he knows this for a fact, he knows uh, I echo all these sentiments that he's going to come through with here, even by the title, it's just, boom, easy, done, we can't keep letting Businessmen decide what art can exist. Easy. Boom. Dunsky. No conversation needed. But obviously we'll get into it. So it's written by Ryan Gore to be official via Squiggly. And let's jump right in because this is heat. Warner Brothers are going through some changes. Their recent merger with Discovery has seen the only female CEO in their history leave the company in favour of David Zaslav, a man looking to restructure the company's strategy completely in a bid to clear $58 billion of debt. Zaslav's reign has begun with a mass execution of upcoming, ongoing and near-complete projects with animation predictably feeling the heaviest blow from the guillotine. Zaslav had a specific plan to scale down production of animation and kids' content, a grouping which reflects a misunderstanding of the broad audience animation can reach, let alone the animated shows and movies under the Warner umbrella, brackets, they literally own a channel called Adult Swim. Creators are also seeing their work wiped from Warner's hugely successful streaming service, HBO Max. 36 titles were recently removed from the service, 23 of which were animated. Many of those proje- these projects only ever existed on the streamer. Giving rise to an existential crisis for filmmakers. How is it that people, uh, that these people are allowed to simply wipe a piece of art from existence? And this is, I've talked about this before, um, uh, pertaining to um, archiving and, uh, you know, having hard copies of, st- of, of things and stuff like that. Um, gaming is suffering from this as well um, with, uh, you know, most games now being completely digital, full, fully digital, and, um, you know, just some, uh, whether it's PlayStation or Xbox, right, or probably Nintendo as well, they completely lock off games, and, um, you know, you paid $60 for them a few years ago, and now they don't exist anymore, but they get to keep the $60, right, um, hence why the argument for emulation and obviously piracy as well in some ways, um, is so is is gaining ground and gaining momentum because we just want to play these games and in this case we just want to watch these films. Um if you don't want to host it, fine, but 
some of the, but you know in recent times people don't do people stop doing dvds and of things um so and, and most things are only just purely digital and purely streaming so if it if it's gone from hbo max then where's it gone it's in the ether now it doesn't exist in some way and that's depressing just from an archival standpoint that is very very concerning anyway continuing on Backlash has not only come from uh, creatives, but from audiences too, uh, exemplified in the comments on any social media post discuss- discussing the issue. Anticipated films like Scoob, Holiday Haunt, had production abruptly come to an end, while beloved TV shows like Young Justice were announced not to be re- receiving new seasons. What the people want seems to be on the opposite end of the spectrum to what executives are doing. The power they hold to decide who can tell stories, what art is allowed to last, to exist, is far too great to be in the hands of people who seemingly do not understand art to begin with. In the wake of the Warner controversy, audiences and creators alike are questioning how qualified these execs really are. The aperture between animation filmmakers and film execs can be attributed to their respective demographics. There is a narrow criteria for success in the business world that requires assimilation to an environment constructed and dominated by white men. Those who get the opportunities to direct uh, the biggest projects in animation most commonly fit that description. A study from the USC Annenberg Inclusion... Fucking shout to the US, USC Annenberg inclusion and also shout to the Ralph J. Bunch Center at uh, UCLA um, who do the uh, Hollywood Diversity Report. Just those two places, goated. Shout to them. Anyway, a study from US, USC Annenberg inclusion uh, inclusion uh, found that only four women uh, directed top animated movies between 07 and 2018 out of 197 filmmakers in total, just one of those women was a woman of colour. However, as creative tools have become more democratised, marginalised people have found their voices heard through animation at an increasing rate. I should say, by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning, but this is animated... Um, this is this Squiggly Magazine is animated-based, and obviously Ryan is talking from a lens of animation, um, but I feel like this can apply to you know the film industry in general. But obviously, just so you know, if you if you're wondering why he's talking about animation so much, hence why. Anyway, um, also their voices heard for animation at an increasing rate. Uh, the modern animation landscape is a playground for people of color, women, and LGBTQI plus. Uh, folk to express themselves and finally have their unique stories told, whether that be on an independent stage or on a or on a level of high visibility. Two of the most celebrated movies to come under from under the Disney umbrella in the last year, Turning Red and Encanto, are both animated movies uh, from people and places that never get their stories told and have made mainstream animation the most exciting it has been for years. Therefore, Warner's decision to turn their back on animated projects conjured dark clouds on what seemed to be a bright future for animation. The stories that audiences yearn for, the ones that are unique, the ones that are covering untrodden ground, immigrant stories, insights into marginalised communities, pieces of work that inspire those who have never seen themselves on screen before, these are the stories that Warner's executives don't seem to appreciate. Apparently unable to see why the expression of a brown person's culture, of a queer or trans person's experience, or anything in that vein, is important. The whiteness of a boardroom is not a problem simply for aesthetic purposes. It has the opportunity to to devalue film as an art form. White execs are more likely to see value in a white filmmaker, which immediately places constrictions on what a film can be. A recent UK uh, Screen Alliance study proves how difficult it has been for UK animation to break out of its cycle of whiteness. Movies can create social movements and change attitudes. Their capacity to do so is diminished 
if only white men are allowed to make them. One could argue that the misunderstanding from execs extends far beyond art made by marginalized people, but their devotion to creating capital means they misunderstand the purpose of art in general. Did you notice how I started smiling during that uh, particular sentence? I don't know if you... Like you know, when you talk and you and you you know you have a a, you, a smile rises as you're talking, you know your inflection just uh, rises a little bit. It's, it's uh, so yeah. I was, <laughs> I was like, uh, yep, yep, yep. This is a preach, motherfucker, preach. Alright, let's get to it. Um, uh, the, through the two, uh, though the two have uh, been married for a long time, it's becoming clearer that art and capitalism are enemies. Art is the embodiment of innovation, subversiveness, and human emotion, an abstract, complex medium through which we aim to express the human condition. Capitalism is all about the cold repetition of what has squeezed the most pennies out of people before. Outstanding. Uh, This is exemplified in the journey of mainstream animation since the mid-90s. CG animation was invented by and for artists as a new medium to express themselves through. This innovation could easily have existed alongside traditional 2D hand-drawn work. However, the lower production times and costs that CG afforded meant that hand-drawn animation has slowly been dying out in the mainstream, all for the sake of making profit and churning out movies as if they are fast food. Art provided an innovation which capitalism only understood as a money-saving scheme, devaluing the long tradition of 2D hand-drawn animation which the industry is built on the back of. Yeah, I, actually, I don't. I don't think you. I don't think people actually. Um, that's a great point that Ryan made, um, albeit quickly. Um, that I don't think people understand how important animation was um, in the twentieth century. Um, you know, obviously Walt Disney, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right, but you know, also you know the Looney Tunes and all of that ilk. Right, cartoons basically <laughs> did a fuck ton of work. Um, you know, we always, we always guess, you know, the Charlie Chaplins and, uh, you know, D.W. Griffith for obvious reasons. Um, not all subjectively great, um, but, or objectively as far as <laughs> either. But, you know, animation did a fuck ton of work there. Um, a lot. Um, a lot of war propaganda. Um, yeah. They made some wild shit back then. Um, and, you know, it was all for pushing the art form forward um albeit with overtly racial undertones uh, for some of it and also for xenophobic undertones um but regardless pushing things forward um and yeah i just i don't don't think people i just wanted to nail that home because i don't think people actually understand uh, how important animation was back in the day especially adult cartoons oh my gosh yeah anyway i watched a documentary on it a while ago it's great when you see, uh, when you only see art as something to profit off, you lack the tools to understand what makes it good or bad. All you see is numbers. Such a cold worldview finds its con- consequences in the infant. God, I hate this. I hate saying this word. Infant infantilization uh, of animation and the categorization of it as "quote unquote" kids content. Those uh, whose brains are wired for conservatism are unable to process something as vibrant and innovative. As animation continually is, the animation is sat at the kids' table because of its power to create change, to give control to people, excuse me, that sit outside of the established corporate hierarchy. The issue is not specific to Warner. At the start of the year, UK government scrapped the BFI Young Audiences content fund. Uh, I didn't even know this. Shout out to Ryan for that one. That's good research. I didn't even know. Increasing difficulty for creators, many of uh, which work in animation, to have their films made. This, combined with prospective Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, oh, oh, wishful thinking, uh, Ryan, wishful thinking, 
<laughs> Rishi Sunak, uh, encouraging artists to retrain uh, into IT related fields. I know what he's talking about, but yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, fuck Rishi Sunak and fuck Liz Ross. Uh, spells a dark future for filmmaking if nothing is done to stop the devaluation of the art form. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I truly laughed when that um, get into cyber uh, shit came through. That was, oh God, that was, that was just so heavily shat on it was great all the off all the opinion articles coming through funny enough actually i think i got a cyber ad today on instagram so they're still doing it um they just chilled on it for a bit but i think they're bringing it back and just not being so overtly dickish with it but i saw one i saw one today about working in cyber you can earn this much money i'm just like bitch fund art bruv (laughs) oh my days triggering all right anyway let's get this finished if there's anyone who understands why art is important, uh, why it's vital for a diverse range of stories to be told, it will be the people telling them. For so long, the film industry has perpetuated this myth that artists cannot be trusted with business decisions, that they need business people to steer them in the right direction, to channel their vision into something consumable. Though great work has been made under these conditions, it has also led to a homogenous uh, film landscape that is slowly strangling that which is unique. Um, this reminds me of um, some random random tangent bear with me stay with me let me land but um i was doing some gardening with my mother a couple of days ago and uh, she was like pull out the the bind 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 weeds binding weeds or something like that basically these little weeds um that as you can imagine binds um and basically chokes out other plants right and they're just very thin you know they're very they literally just like it's like little it's like a little uh, strawberry laces if you had those. Like it's like laces, uh, little 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 laces, just wrapping round the finger of a of like um, a branch or whatever, or a whole tree, and just basically killing them all. Um, and so we we're pulling them out, and I was kind of just um, I don't know. I was, I was kind of thinking of thinking of that when I was talking about slowly strangling. Um, but you know that's a that's a perfect metaphor I feel for um, capitalism and art and watching a tree grow, but then you have uh, you know money all over it. Anyway. Or money men around it. Let's finish off. Uh, as it stands, uh, studios judge the quality of their movies on a binary. Did it recover its budget or not? <laughs> Great. There is no room for the spectrum of opinion. No consideration of cult fan base. The aim for studios is for each and every movie to appeal to the widest audience. Its ideology is antagonistic to what that's what's at the heart of creative film. Major studios need to reframe what they expect from each individual release and have people in the room who can see the value in something beyond its ability to recover its budget. Look at a studio like A24, founded by founder, former filmmakers. Oh, gosh. Oh, the segues. The segues to the next one is great. Uh, founded by former filmmakers that consistently releases... I hope you, I hope you guys are looking at the uh, description right now in the full show notes because, yeah, it's perfect. You know exactly where I'm going with this. Uh, the consistent releases the most challenging and celebrated art uh, year on year all despite their titles not breaking the $100 million uh, mark until earlier this year. Warner Brothers 2022 release, uh, the Batman grossed almost seven times its budget. Surely this allows room to take a risk on an exciting young director from a marginalized background to make something potentially game-changing, even if it doesn't recoup. It should not take convincing to give marginalized people a chance. Filmmakers should not have their work defined by a box office number. They should not have their work infantilized. I, I I don't know why... I can't say that properly. Infantilized. It just ugh, doesn't roll off for me well. Um, and they should not have their work uh, have their work wiped from existence because someone unqualified to control art has decided that it should not exist. The film industry cannot survive while all those who are anti-art are in control of art. 
I will say um, in a minor response to that, and I'll finish here, hopefully, that I feel like um, while the film industry does have a healthy contingent of those people that, you know, don't care about the art or have nothing or have no experience in that, right? Um, Like in the same way a... um, you know, a, 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 an an owner of a, a owner of a sports team might not know much about the sport, right? But they do it anyway because it's a good money maker or a good investment, quote unquote, right? I can, while while I understand that that might be um, the majority of executives, you know, most of the executives uh, I feel have worked in the industry long enough to see that uh to see that art is there but they just choose not to i feel like there's a lot of um uh there's a lot of soul blackening uh towards that you know what i mean um it reminds me of just like this is random another random comparison might not might may not may may work may not work but like um you know triple h right um wrestler right uh he's i don't know if he is he the ceo of wwe now i know if it's man um um, you know, quote unquote, resigned um, <laughs> to, because he had tons of fucking allegations against him, as if they would go away as if he uh, as soon as he retired or whatever. Um, you know, he's lead Triple H is leading the show now. I don't know what specifically position, but um, you know, he used to be a wrestler, right? He he was in the he was in the meat grinder, kind of literally, right? But now he's the he's the guy, you know, having to be the businessman as well as and. I can feel you, you can imagine that of all people you would like to have someone on that on that pedestal I guess you need to have executives right I feel like that's a, a, a no brainer right so who do you have to do that Ryan made a minor mention of that um of uh, of uh, you know maybe uh, of artists apparently needing business people business minded people business thinking people you don't. I don't think you do. I don't think you do. Um, it's easy. I feel it's easy to learn finance, to learn about money. Um, I don't think you need someone specifically to do so. Um, it's easy to budget things. I feel. Um, but anyway. Uh, so is the perfect person someone like Triple H, who was in the meat grinder and is now out the meat grinder, and is now leading the meat grinder? Um, maybe. But then again, uh, there's a lot of things wrong with, you know, the concept of wrestling in general, um, especially how they treat their uh, their roster. Um, and it's kind of and it can be similarly put to the film industry and, and art in general, where you have we're here to consume art. People, people are here to consume art. People want to listen to that music, to, to watch that film. Right. We don't give a fuck, <laughs> kind of in some ways about the, um, about about how it came about. Just give the money necessary, and we want to see that, and we also want to see risk. You guys don't say you do, but you kind of do. The point of art is to consistently keep it, keep the train moving on that front. In terms of creativity, you may not want a story about some, I don't know. Uh, like a, a trans person uh, living life in Miami, right? Picking a picking a place, right? Random random thing. You may not want that. You may not need that. 
but if you gave it a spin, hey, it might become your favourite show. I didn't expect something like Moonlight to be one of my top 10 films of all time. Why would I? You know, I don't live in Florida. I'm not gay. But, you know, we, we don't we don't think in those... We, well, we shouldn't think in those binaries, right? Logically, common sense, sensically, we don't think in those binaries. Because that's silly, right? So, why not embrace some representation for once? Why not? Is it going to hurt? I don't think so. You're going to see plenty of white people on TV for the re- for in Western world. You're fine. Don't worry about it. But, you know, sometimes uh, Miss Marvel is, 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 is cool. You know, a little palate cleanser. Let's call it that. That's probably demeaning it a bit, but whatever, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm ranting at this point. I've, I made a, I was going to make a point, and then I kind of just went on tangents. But anyway, shout out to Ryan. Um, I didn't tell him that I'm, I was going to do, uh, do this one, so he's going to be gassed when this, uh, when this drops. Um, but yeah, man, shout out to Ryan, and um, shout out to all the eyes, of course. Um, <laughs> speaking of segues... So we're hopping into our second uh, film uh, segment, and this is about the aforementioned A24. Um, this is via NY Mag, via Vulture, whatever you... Uh, I don't know, it's the same, it's, 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 it's there, and it says New York Magazine, or, or New York... Uh, it's New York Magazine, isn't it? Yeah, NY Mag, yeah, it's New York Magazine slash Vulture, whatever, I don't know. Uh, but it's called uh, The Cult of A24, uh, it's by uh, Nate Jones, and uh, yeah, it's. I, I just find A24 a very fascinating uh, entity. Um, like I said, you know, I really enjoyed. I really love Moonlight. Um, I actually have. Um, it's speaking, I think he'll probably mention A24 merch and stuff like that. I do have some A24 merch um, as a you know, as a film tool. Um, I meant tool derogatory, by the way. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look at it and talk at the same time of having a um, basically a moonlight hardback, uh, just just a script, and obviously other things. Um, I think there's a review in it and uh, some pictures. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a nice little meaty book for the coffee table. Um, but I would love that kind of shit more. I would love more of that shit. I would literally collect scripts if that was the case. If people were making that shit constantly. Of just like here's a here's a script you that you like, put it in a hardback, boom! I would fucking eat that shit up. I would have no money. The that'd be a, yet another financial sinkhole that I have like crazy. I, I I want it, but I also don't want it because I seriously would have some serious FOMO uh, that would break my brain. Anyway, let's jump right into this because um, I feel I feel like um, if you don't know it, it's a twenty four, uh, buckle up. It's interesting. Last summer, an Austin-based graphic designer named Lauren Robinson threw herself a 24th birthday party. She and her friends from University of Texas loved the loved theme, and a, and since they had spent the early part of the pandemic marathoning art house movies, they latched onto the idea of ringing in 24 with an A24 party. Held appropriately uh, near the city's Ladybird Lake, a couple uh, friends showed up dressed as the skaters from the mid-90s, uh, another from the last black man in San Francisco. I still need to see that, by the way. I've, got it, I've had it recorded for years. I don't want to Two different people came as the ghost from a ghost story. Robertson dressed up as Flor- Florence Pugh's May Queen from Midsommar. I think that's how you say it. Uh, a costume she created out of headbands. 
an old, t- an old shirt and $20 worth of fake flowers from the dollar store. On TikTok, where Robertson had documented the party, someone commented, quote, it's a movie production company, not a personality trait, unquote. <laughs> it literally, I feel like people do actually see it as a fucking personality trait. Like, mm, look at me, I have A24. It's like, all right, all right, calm down. But I, I would love that. I would love, personally, that kind of cultish fan base to something that I'm helming. That would be sick. I'm, I can't lie. That would be cool to have. You know, where someone's just, regardless, of, and, you know, respect to A24 as a um, production and distribution company, they do some very eclectic shit. Like, no film is the same. And I respect that. I respect the variety. So if you're into, and this is why I'm not fully into A24, because, you know, some of the films I ain't interested in. You know, I love everywhere, every, everything, everywhere, all at once. I love Moonlight. I really need to see Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, Ex Machina, right? You know, there's a few films, but you know they've made many more, and I'm, I'm probably not going to watch it. So, you know, I don't see, I, 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 I can't be a fan of it in that case. But hey, man, people, do, people are, and that's cool. I found that interesting. Robinson thought they were making too big a deal. Quote: This was literally a costume party. Uh, unquote. What drew her and her friends to a 24? She says was the rawness. <laughs> quote unquote rawness a film like the Florida Project uh, another one I haven't seen uh, could transport her to a world far away from her own while 8th grade can make her cringe recognition of her own teenage awkwardness quote it connects you on a personal level they're not just these feel good rom-com-esque movies there's d- a deeper element unquote regardless of whether the get together was worthy of internet scorn Robinson and her friends are far more uh, far from alone uh, in their devotion to the A24 brand, the R A24 subreddit has over 73,000 subscribers. That's the Jesus Christ, making it larger than the one dedicated to the Chicago Cubs. That's great. Uh, the company's T-shirts regularly resell for more than hundred dollars on fashion sites like Grailed. Nope, 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 nope. No reselling. No, none of that. Um, it's the same with shoes. I, I just, I, I'm not gonna do it. I, I don't want a piece of kit that hard i just don't you are not gonna have me scouring the web for resale t-shirts just not gonna happen not gonna happen i'm too common sense for some of this shit sorry not gonna happen anyway and in plugged in corners of social media the a24 superfan has become a recognizable stereotype as writer willie staley once joked quote a24 is short for a 24 year old guy will think this is the best movie ever made that's great What's noble out uh, all of this is that A24 is not a filmmaker or an arts collective. It's an independent film studio, and studios don't usually have fans. People may love Atonement and Eternal Sunshine the Spotless Mind, but as KJ Rothweiler, one half of uh, social media G- Gadfly duo uh, The Ion Pack, told me, no one's rocking a Focus Features hoodie. Good point. It's ten years of it, in its 10 years of existence, A24 has released more than 100 films in nearly every genre imaginable. See, I didn't even know there is over 100. That's no, more than 100. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, from psychological thrillers in the 1890s, uh, lighthouses, to slapstick romps about interne- intergenerational trauma. In the early years, the brand was built on hype-basing films like Spring Breakers, as well as brainy genre fare like Ex Machina and The Witch. All of these weren't acquisitions. This year didn't begin producing its own film until Moonlight. Uh, until Moonlight. Uh, its films uh, felt like something new, harder edged than the typical art house film of the aughts and more nakedly expressionistic. Asked A24 fans to describe what unites them and they'll use words like eclectic, eccentric, immersive and authentic. 
There is a certain sleight of hand involved, as not everything A24 has put out is great. In the wake of Spring Breakers, it released a, a bad Gus Van Zandt movie, Sea of Trees, a bad Gillian Flynn adaptation, Dark Places, and not one but two uh, bad Adam Egoyan uh, movies, The Captive and Remember. But the magic of the brand was that over time, it has been able to sell the idea of A24 as, as synonymous uh, with originality, idiosyncrasy, and prestige. Not a movie by film. Film in italics, alright? So now you know he means it. The world of independent film is a place ambitious uh, new companies go to die. <laughs> that's great. Uh, uh, that's, that's depressing. Alright, um, the start of costs are high, the financial rewards slim. If an indie studio is lucky, it staves off bankruptcy long enough to get bought by a major corporation. If not, it joins labels like Film District and Virtual Studios in a crowded graveyard. The founding premise of A24 was to avoid this fate by spending far less on traditional advertising like billboards and TV spots and focus instead on turning films into viral sensations. The seed capital was provided by Guggenheim Partners where co-founder Daniel Katz and previously, had previously worked. A24 was an... Oh, shout to nepotism, by the way. Big up nepotism. A24 was an early adopter of Instagram where shots of merchandise coexisted with memes uh, that had nothing to do with the films. To promote Ex Machina at South by Southwest, the company created a Tinder bot that posed as Alicia Vikander's character, Ava. For the witch, A24 made a Twitter account for the satanic goat Black Phillip, which strengthened its mesmeric power to the point where fans were clamoring for him to be awarded an Oscar. See, see, see? This, this is where you lot just be extra for no reason. Like, I'm not, a goat's not getting an Oscar, right? It's not happening. Fucking, m most humans don't get an Oscar, right? Let's give me a fucking goat. Fuck the ice, by the way. I hate that film still um, to this day. Essentially, the company was doing brand Twitter before brand Twitter. And it's telling that uh, as people started finding this type of engagement cheesy, A24 largely phased out. A24 has had the good, had the good fortune to emerge in the early 10s, uh, the moment social media was transforming from a text culture to an image culture of Instagram posts, Reddit memes, and reaction GIFs. Over the course of the decade, it became easy for a film to... Well, Excuse me. Uh, morph into a social media fetish object, especially if it, excuse me, featured uh, meticulous art direction and cinematography, as so many of the A24 films did. More so, more so than its competitors, A24 operated with one eye towards online hype, from James Franco's "Look at My Shit" monologue in Spring Breakers, to Oscar Isaac's "Ex Machina" dance, to Adam Sandler's manic grin in Uncut Gems. This movie seemed at times almost purpose-built for the grist mill of internet ephemera. Ooh, ephemera. I love that word. Great word. Uh, your experience of an A24 film did not end uh, when the credits started to roll, so much of the fun was what you did with it after. Take the Daniel Radcliffe farting corpse comedy Swiss Army Man, which premiered a Sundance 2016 without distribution. After a mixed reception of screenings, the initial offers were underwhelming. Then co-director Daniel Shiner told the uh, Washington Post A24 arrived with a hard sell. An exec uh, quote said, "If he uh, said he would jump out of a window if we didn't go with them." A24 knew something everyone else didn't. On the modern on the modern internet, Swiss Army Man's ADHD adult humor was not a turnoff. The strangeness of the concept could market the film all by itself, which uh, is not to say that A24 didn't market it. Turned out Radcliffe's character into a ragdoll physics game, which evolved into a text campaign that sent fans pizza. It won a Clio. <laughs> I, I appreciate the creativity, man. Like, I'm just like, I'm reading this live and I'm just like, what the fuck am I reading? <laughs> Sometimes, great. And thanks to a deal with DirecTV, the studio's bad bets uh, could be safely shuffled away to a place where only the complete, complete, completists, 
I should say completionist, but whatever, uh, would ever find them. Uh, Mojave, barely lethal, low tide, there's a reason you haven't heard of them. By 2016, the studio had developed a reputation as the film industry version of underground record label. I think this. Uh, I think of Sub Pop before AD, says Mike Sherrill, CEO of the Alamo Drafthouse Theatre chain, where A24 films gross uh, comparably to efforts uh, from far larger studios. You know they were trying to. Uh, you know they were going to have to take, have a take on the artists if they, uh, they selected. They had that sense of it. Uh, they had the sense of if I follow these guys, maybe I. The 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 italics are throwing me off. By the way, just that's why I'm tripping up so tight. If I follow these guys, maybe I can be the cool guy at the record store. Okay. Knowing the same distributor was behind the bling ring, under the skin, and the lobster was a mark of cine- cineast? cineast knowledge. Okay. A phenomenon the company was soon capitalized on through concerted self branding efforts. Most important of these was the merch. Here we go. Here comes the merch. From the beginning, A24 demonstrated an ability to transmute its sense of taste into physical objects. As head of acquisitions, Noah Sacco told GQ, a studio wooed spring breakers producer Megan Ellison with a gift basket of custom-made gun-shaped bongs engraved with the film's logo. As its standing group, A24 merchandise became the company's most visible means of brand extension. It could be cheeky when the people began calling it A24. The studio released a sweat, uh, sweatshirt emblazoned with a a24 uh it could be provocative uh as in the butt plug shaped candles it released to celebrate everything everywhere all at once and crucially it could be exclusive employing the hype building techniques of the fashion industry a24 embraced limited edition drops often in collaboration with buzzy labels like online online ceramics the quality cost and availability of the product is a frequent topic of discussion on the art a24 subreddit where one user recalled spending $170 on hereditary tie-ins. If they ever drop another Midsummer line, I will probably buy everything, dot, dot, dot. I'm ready to spend 700 bucks on merch, lol. <sighs> I mean, I got the Moonlight thing for Christmas, by the way, just so you know. Um, but still, um, I don't know. I just There's a limit, I guess, and, you know. People have bigger limits than me, I guess. I don't know. I can't. I can't, I can't completely shit on it because I, you know, I participated in it in some way. Anyway, these efforts uh, first began to bear fruit in 2017 and 18. Moonlight, Ladybird racked up, uh, ra- yeah, racked up uh, Oscar noms while Hereditary broke box office records and sent the idea of A24 horror, uh, slow moving, metaphorical, in dire need of an online explainer, into the mainstream. The company began routinely refusing to speak about its inner workings on the record propagating a mystique that remains to this day, and the brand began to carry legitimate cultural capital. Pre-A24 film culture was a guy wearing a flannel shirt with a Clint Eastwood t-shirt underneath <laughs> underneath here, the new Beverly in LA, Rothweiler says. Now it had become sexy. This was the era of good time, and a cult hit that cemented the studio's association with downtown streetwear scene. Uh, Pete Davidson was a huge fan, apparently. Um, and the Lower East Side opening of Art House Cinema hotspot, The Metrograph, where A24 directors like Ari Aster were seen hobnobbing at the upstairs cantina. The Ion Pack, which has built a podcast empire skewering the cinephile culture A24 represents, pinpoints this as the moment when A24 branded hats and hoodies began popping up in places like Soho House. It's a mood board culture, uh, says Curtis, e- Curtis Everett Pauly, uh, the other half of the duo. A lot of creatives love to put, uh, love to find obvious art film references to put on a mood board for fashion videos and album campaigns. 
it was this weird flattening. Uh, yeah, it was this weird flattening. A24 became a bridge merging this mood board influencer pop culture zeitgeist with art house movies made by real directors. You might say it was there. It was here that A24, uh, the A24 brand, began to represent not movies but vibes. In the words of philosopher Robin James, a way to quote connect status-laden people to status-laden cultural objects and practices. Unquote. If 2017 and 18 were the spring of A24, 2019 was its highest summer. The writer Will Harrison calls it the year that memeable A24 thing crystallised, to me at least. With Midsommar, The Lighthouse and Uncut Gems, the studio released three vital, uh, viral hits within a six-month span. And then you have COVID. Culture was fully stagnant. All we had was just passing over shit and canonising it. As cultural life moved fully online, A24 fandom filtered down the digital middle classes, through, excuse me, through spaces like letterboxed and online dating profiles, at which point it followed a familiar pattern. What was once trendy became first a stereotype, then a punchline. As Fast Company put it, what if Miramax, but also Supreme? <laughs> That's literally what I was thinking of. So I was like, so this is basically Supreme, but a film, but a film. Like, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, I'm getting Supreme vibes here. And yeah, but at least A24 actually do other sustainable uh, other substantial shit and not just supreme being a fucking hype beast uh 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 fucking dustbin uh harrison used to work at the metrograph and he wrote a viral baffler story about being laid off he says the experience made him wonder if the internet idea of a24 superfan had been fully separated from reality quote i had a job that was literally 50 paces from the intersection that the internet is obsessed with and yeah i could not sell a movie ticket to save my life he says Online, there is this idea of uh, an A24 fan as a guy wearing Salomon Salomon uh, sneakers, a Sub-Zero resistant shell coat, and a tiny beanie that looks like a condom. Okay. These these images are fucking me up. (laughs) And you you do see that guy walking around low in Manhattan, but how much of that is just us playing Don Quixote? Tilting at windmills and thinking they're Arc'teryx sporting giants? Arc'teryx? I don't know how to say that. Over the course of reporting this story, the A24 superfans I encountered look like, uh, less like that character and more like Milwaukee IT professional Soraya Wallace. If A24 makes a movie, I'm going to see it. That's how it is, she says. A lifelong film buff, Wallace has always loved the movie she found through Criterion and Jane- Janus? 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 Probably Janus. Janus. That's <laughs> great. But it strikes uh, her that most of these titles are older and already canonized. A24 stands out because it's new. The intensity of its movies, she says, brings out her emotions in ways films had never never had before. She estimates that she has uh, seen Midsommar around 12 times, and she recently got a tattoo of Florence Pugh's Danny. Okay. See, I don't know, levels, man, levels. I just can't get into this level. When Wallace saw everything everywhere all at once, she cried for the entire movie. She, I, You know what, Loki? That experience really did fuck me up a bit. Um... There's a high chance of sensory overload, but it was just the right amount to just, like, just grip you. Just hold you by the neck. Like, it's so just overloaded. I love it. It could break a brain, but if it doesn't break you, oh my gosh, it changes you. It's great. Anyway, she's in the process of getting a tattoo of that one, too. In the meantime... Oh, yeah, shout out to, um, who did it? A friend did it, actually. <laughs> Funny enough. I think it was Tish. Shout out to Tish. I think she got a fucking everything every all at once tattoo recently. So shut the tish. There you go. I know someone who actually had actually got a, generally got an everything all at once tattoo. That's great. Uh, she made herself a custom pair of Converse with the film's googly eye motif. 
There we go. Literally, literally, I think that's what she got. I think she got a rock, and it says "ha ha ha," because uh, that's in the film. If you don't know, if you know, you know. Wallace is a member of A twenty four All Access or Triple A twenty four for short. Uh, for five dollars a month, she receives a subscription to the studio's in house zine, the occasional free movie ticket, entry to the studio's close friends list on Instagram, and best of all, first dibs on limited edition merch. The company is famed for its minimalist designs, but Wallace much prefers the products that tie into actual films. Quote. People were going and getting uh, like A24 tattoos just of the company, and I was like, "Why are we all? Why are we doing that? Of all the cool things to uh, in all these cool films, you get the logo." Yay! The AAA24 members I spoke with tend to agree that uh, it's worth the cost, even if they laugh about joining the cult. But the studio does not promote the program, and one might get the sense that it's little, uh, it's a little embarrassed or at least self-conscious about it. Yeah, I highly doubt that. The memberships pro- uh, membership programs, inter- it's because they don't need to, that's the point. Um, if you don't need to advertise, why bother? Uh, the membership program's introduction doesn't uh, does seem to mark the end of one period in the A24 story and the beginning of another. Is AAA24 a sign that the company, even its biggest fans, call slightly pretentious, is tiptoeing finally close to earnestness? Or is it merely a reflection of something we've known since the studio's very first hit? That there's no more powerful imperative than look at my shit. Okay, so in 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 efforts of time, I won't say much, but I feel like I probably could have uh, made that into a long read. But um, you know, it's interesting regardless. It's fascinating regardless. Um, and yeah, man, just I I don't know if I, I can't get that deep into something like that. You know what I mean? Unless it's mine, I just can't. You know, I like some films. I look at some films trailers, and I'm just like, I'm cool with it. You know what I mean? I'm cool with that. I don't want to watch that. So yeah, I don't know how. I respect the people that manage to just enjoy the eclecticism of it, but I'm just too, or maybe I'm just too stuck in my ways to do that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm explorative in a lot of ways. I love to discover, but I don't know. I know what I like in this, do you know what I mean? And that's all. Okay, so this one, so I've, I've just picked some long ass shit this, this week, I'm, I apologise, but it's the good shit never, nevertheless, uh, so let's continue with the TV uh, topic, and this is all about Mr. Michael K. Williams, the late Michael K. Williams, his memoir is dropping soon, uh, let me get the specific date up right quick, uh, uh, Scenes from My Life by Michael K. Williams, uh, with John Sternfeld, apparently uh, published on the first. It's going to be published on the first September. So if you want to go comp that for seventeen pounds forty, um, and maybe might be more in other places. Who knows? Um, but yeah, go go spin that if you want to go spin that. Um, but I am going to read an extract uh, from the book, uh, and this is via the Guardian. So, and uh, yeah, it's called "If I'm Not Omar Anymore, Who Am I?" The late Michael K. Williams on leaving the wire and meeting Obama. Says John Bryan. If it looks real to you, it feels real to me. On the wire, Omar's tenacity and swagger were based on people I knew and grew up with, including my childhood friend's uh, brother, Kay. But his pain raw his raw nerves. I didn't have to look anywhere for that. I was built out of that stuff. Omar Little was described as a guy from Baltimore who robs drug dealers, though he doesn't sell or use. He's gay, doesn't hide it, and operates as something of the Robin Hood of his community. To play Omar, I tapped into the confidence and fearlessness of people I'd been... I'd known growing up. I'd held guns before, but never in preparation to use one. And I didn't want to be one of those dudes holding their gun all sideways. 
Concerned about my tiny wrists, I asked Kay to show me the proper way to hold one. I practiced day over and over. Omar had to look like a guy who knew how to use, how to use a gun. Without that detail looking real, nothing else would have flown. You can have the whole neighborhood yelling Omar coming and running for cover, but if I walked out there holding that shotgun like I didn't know what I was doing, I'd get laughed off the screen. As for Omar's homosexuality, it was groundbreaking 20 years ago, and I admit that at first I was scared to play a gay character. I remember helping my mother carry groceries through her apartment and telling her about this new role that I booked. I knew from the jump he was going to be a big it was yeah, he was going to be a big deal. This character is going to change my career, I said. But the thing is, I hesitated, he's openly gay. Well, baby, she says, that's the life you chose and I support it. She hadn't embraced the arse or my interest in them, but to me, that was her version of encouragement. I think my initial fear of Omar's sexuality came from my upbringing, the communities that raised me, and the stubborn stereotypes of gay characters. I made Omar my own. He wasn't written as a type, and I wouldn't play him as one. A new, more potent fear dug its way into my mind. This dude is a straight-up killer. He strikes fear into the height of anyone in his path, but everyone knew I wasn't that guy. I was 35 years old when I started on the wire, but carried that scarred, uh, that scared childhood uh, uh, self close. He lingered under my skin, uh, just below the surface. So the self-talk got fierce. There is no way you can pull this off. You have nothing to pull on. There is nothing. There's nothing remotely you have in common with this guy. The change came when I stopped trying to bring myself to Omar and started doing the opposite. I dug into how he was like me, tapping into what we had in common. Omar is sensitive and vulnerable and he loves with his heart on his sleeve. You can say what you want to him, he rolls right off, but, you, but don't you dare mess with his people. He loves absolutely, fearlessly, with his whole entire being. Excuse me. After clicking with that, I understood him completely. I came up with the narrative that his vulnerability is what makes him most volatile. When he cries and screams over his lover's tortured and murdered body, screaming at the, uh, in the halls of the morgue and hitting himself in the head, that looks real because it felt real to me. When Omar goes after String a Bell and everyone else responsible, he is driven by love and loyalty. I also loved how Omar is the opposite of stereotypical hood types. He isn't about the cars, clothes and women. He doesn't fit into any of the boxes he, uh, people might try to stuff him in, whether that's morally or sexually or something else. In so many ways, he stands alone, but he also feels pain, especially when his loved ones, Brandon and then later Butchie, are killed in those horrific in these horrific ways. Both times, the pain cuts even deeper since they are killed because of him to send a message to him because his enemies can't get to him. That's a particular kind of hurt. That's the flip side of getting into a character. You wake up that sleeping beast, those actual memories, those real emotions. I meditate on painful things all day long for a scene and when it's over, it's little wonder I'm tempted to go off and smoke crack. Drugs had long been a smokescreen, a cocoon, a means for me to hide from the real. In character, sometimes uh, sometimes get too real for me. I don't disappear into a character, quote-unquote disappear. I go through him and come back out, but when I come back out, I am not the same. As the years went on, I got out of my own head and came around to see that the wire was bigger than Omar, bigger than Mike Williams, uh, bigger than Baltimore, even just a black community. David Simon knew what he was doing. The show, which added uh, to the world each season, was creating a portrait of America. I remember the day towards the end of the season, where uh, season three, when we shot the scene where Omar kills Stringer Bell. It ate at me, I, and I avoided Idris Elba, who played Stringer all day. I was troubled by it, the message. 
Why is this the way two black men sell their differences? It bothered me, especially since Stringer was making his way through college, setting up uh, in real estate, trying to get out of the game, and I had to kill him. I talked to the writers about it, about why that had to happen. Dramatically, for story purposes, I understood, but as a black man who felt he was representing his community, it bothered me. There was a larger problem uh, than maybe I could articulate at the time, uh, but it stayed with me. The why was real, real in the sense that those characters whose lives were in the street could be killed off at any time. That's how it really is. Guys like Stringer Bell get killed. Guys like Omar Little get killed. The realism of that world demanded that Omar too meet his fate. So when the time came for him to go, I had enough preparation, but it was not easy. I want to stop here briefly because um, I remember watching that uh, first time when he got killed and it was like a you and I was just so pissed off. I was just like, excuse me, because it, it, it's real, right? It's, it's real in that sense that, you know, they're human. They can get caught slipping, you know, but you see like a character. So such a fucking G character. I love Omar Little as a character. Absolute G of a character, right? For all the reasons, uh, William says on this particular piece right here. Um, it's outstanding. And you see that when you're watching him, you, you see it and you're just like, he's unstoppable. He, he's unkillable. But obviously, like, you know, he's, he's, he's still human and he got clapped. And it was just really sobering. It was like the most sobering thing I've ever seen on TV. It was just in, in, in one way. It was just like, rah. You, ha- you had to deep it. You had to like, rah. He is still human, after all. Like, obviously, like, duh. Why was I thinking of him as like a impervious superhero? You know what I mean? But it's fascinating. It's fascinating. If you haven't watched it, um, yeah. I mean, shit. It's been how many years now? But anyway. <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, the why wouldn't have been made today? It's too cold. It actually didn't do well when it initially aired. So it's funny how it's cold uh, legion now. Anyway, Omar is killed unexpectedly. Buying a pack of cigarettes by a kid, young kid in the streets. It's not played for dramatic effect. He's literally going to say what I just said, but I just realised. <laughs> There's no slow-mo, no music. It's even early in the episode. It's just something that happens, just as it would really happen. Even his body tag is mixed up in the morgue. The actor who played the shooter, uh, Tulis, I'm going say Dingwall, uh, was 10 or 11 at the time. We rehearsed it, but during the run-through, we didn't set uh, off the squib. A small sticker could die my, on my clothes. The first time he saw the effect go off was when we were rolling. That scared look on his face you see on the screen is the real human being, the real little boy going into shock. He drops the gun and is freaked out. That's not acting. We all stepped into the real there. After your cut, he started crying, bugging out. Is he alright? Is he alright, Michael? I had to console him. We had to wait a while to make sure he was okay to finish the scene. Other setups were needed and I had to lie there in that pool of blood. I died on screen before, and I would again, but lying there as Omar was different. It felt like the end of something. During a break that day, I went to the trailer, and one of the wardrobe people, Donna, came to change my shirt. She saw me sitting in front of my vanity mirror, headphones on, spacing out, listening to Tupac's Tupac's Tupac. Uh, I don't know how I say it anymore. I, I change. I chop and change. Uh, unconditional love. I was going into a dark place. And she could see it all over my face. Uh-oh, no, she said. We're not doing this today, Michael. We're not doing this today. Snap out of it. I met her eyes and came back, but I couldn't avoid it forever. It was strange energy on the set that day. People were trying to avoid having any feelings about the show coming to an end. People had come uh, to like me and adore Omar. And there was this resistance, like no one wanted to allow themselves to feel. Omar's death was, the o- was also the death of something that had grown inside of me. 
something like uh, I'd grown inside of merged into. That was a crippling realization. I remember thinking that if I wasn't Omar anymore, then who was I? I had defined my worth through this fictional character, and now I was just Mike again. I felt stripped, lost, emptied out. It was uh, it was like this darkness crept in on me during the end of that show. In March, I was invited to a town hall Obama was doing at the Forum in Harrisburg, near my mum's house. Uh, I'd just come off a three-day cocaine bender and was whacked out of my mind, shooting a movie in Rhode Island. I threw on a sport coat and jumped on the Amtrak and went down to Philadelphia. I got to this packed auditorium and one of the female campaign volunteers found me, pinned a hope button on me and took me by the arm. I was in the back searching for my family when a campaign worker got on the stage and announced over loudspeaker... Michael Kenneth Williams has just endorsed Senator Obama for President of the United States. What? The room went crazy, and the next thing I knew, all this Secret Service had circled around me, and I was like, what is happening? It was surreal. After Obama's speech, his campaign staff invited me and my family to come downstairs to meet him. After we all got cleared, we went through and waited for him to walk in. I was intimidated meeting the future President of the United States. He was not just a front-runner at the time, but a global celebrity. And it was wall-to-wall people down there. He came down to uh, came down the steps and my cousin's wife greeted him. Senator Obama, I understand that you watched The Wire and you're a fan of Michael K. Williams and he's here too, dot, dot, dot. Where's Omar at? Obama yelled out. That's my man. The man with the code. Where's he at? He found me in the sea of the crowd and grabbed me, gave me the homeboy handshake into a hug and pulled me in. What's good with you, man? He asked. Good, good, God bless you, bro. I managed to stutter out. I couldn't even put my words together. I was such a mess. Obama shook my hand and I could see it in his eyes. He was like, I don't got time for this. He kept it moving. I was not in my right mind. I told people I was nervous, but I actually had lockjaw from too much cocaine. I wasn't yet in headspace to even make uh, make sense of meeting Obama. Much less make use of it. I'll meet him again a few years later when I was uh, more ready to embrace the kind of influence he had uh, but and accept the kind of influence I could have, but not that day. I was nowhere near ready yet. In the summer of 2016, my documentary uh, series Black Market and HBO's The Night Of uh, started airing within about a week of each other. Both shows explored issues of class, marginalised communities, criminal justice and underground economies. I was doing both uh, press for both simultaneously, so a lot of the questions were on these topics and I wanted to be able to answer. By this point, I had hooked up with the ACLU, uh, American Civil Liberties Union, uh, to be its ambassador for smart justice, but it was, only, it was mostly a campaign where they used my face. I don't. Uh, I didn't know yet what I needed to know. Uh, needed to know, and it felt like time to grow up. Will you help me figure this out? I asked Michael Skolnick, a film producer turned activist, whom I met through Bordel Empire. I got people going back in my family, friends. Uh, my nephew uh, Dominic has been locked up for eighteen years. Jimmy's got nine life sentences. This shit is personal to me, and I got to do it right. Michael agreed, and we started to meet every week or so to talk about the things I could do. I didn't want to just be a face. Uh, to be just a face. I wanted to get my hands dirty, or, depending on how you look at it, clean. The Kappa was a meeting in the uh, in September 2016 at the Obama White House among some heavy hitters, former attorneys general, major CEOs, religious and civil rights leaders, and other big-name activists. Obama was in his uh, last year, the home stretch, and his administration had been doing important work in criminal justice reform. There's nothing like getting invited to the White House to make you feel like an imposter. Once the excitement wore off, that familiar voice kicked in. Who do you think you are? I thought of all the things I didn't know. I thought about my mother, who complimented me about uh, first being on Obama's radar. But at the end of that conversation, the last thing she said, you know, when you're in these rooms, son, just smile and nod your head. Don't try to talk. 
Just getting invited to meet the president mean the president you, means you must have done something to earn it. But I didn't feel that. Yeah, but I'm just an actor, I said to Michael. Why do they want me to be there? Come on, Mike, he said. This isn't just about being on TV. This is your personal life. Yeah, but I don't, dot, dot, dot. What do I know about this? A lot, he said. More than most people. You've lived it. The White House meeting was about 25 people in a Roosevelt room, a windowless space with a fireplace, oil paintings, and that grand wood table. I felt like I'd stepped into a history book. Michael must have se- uh, sensed my nerves because he came over to me while we were wait- waiting. Relax, Mike, he said. Remember what they say, the cl- those closest to the problem are the closest to the solution. Oh shit, I thought. The light bulb went on in my head. Maybe I do know something. Besides, I couldn't have hidden if I wanted to. They put me right in the middle of the table, across from an empty chair, and I knew who was going to sit there. A barber came out of the Oval Office into the room and began to- to- uh, taking ideas from everybody. He mostly listened to, uh, and Valerie Jarrett uh, took notes. When it was my turn, I spoke on what I knew. This is very personal to me, I said to the room, trying to squash the nerves, uh, feeling all those eyes on me. My nephew Dominic has been imprisoned for 18 years for a crime he committed as a teenager. He's mentoring men twice his age, and I want to honour him whenever I speak on this. Growing up, I saw family members, friends, locked up, killed, and have uh, seen how this affects communities like mine, poor communities of colour. Later on, I thanked Obama for all the clemency work he was doing, and asked him what he planned on doing for the female population that was incarcerated, because up till then, it had mostly been men. It was really the first time I realised I had agency, a voice, a life experience that mattered. That's what I could bring to the table. I could use my visibility not to score drugs or get a table at a restaurant or even make myself feel better, but actually to but to actually contribute. Do something. Oh man, Jesus Christ. I wish I I wish I uh, left on three, but um, yeah man, that's crazy. That's a fascinating he's a fascinating man, um Michael K. Williams. Like just the fact that, you know, he's just like what? days off a cocaine bender and he was going to the White House that's just I I can't comprehend that I've never been around cocaine before Um, and that's just how do you function like that it's just it's just a lot Um, so yeah um, I mean yeah R.I.P. Michael K. Williams of course again if you want to go get the book drop September 1st um, if that audiobook comes through, if an audiobook comes through, I'm definitely gonna give that a spin. Definitely gonna cop that. Um, but yeah, man, yeah, man, uh, absolutely a fascinating uh, person. Uh, Michael Kelly Williams was a truly fascinating person. Okay, home stretch, and we're getting depressing. Well, not depressing, but yeah, it's kind of depressing. It's just shit. It just makes me feel shit um, in terms of what it is. Um, so yeah, sports. We're talking about Saudi Arabia um, and uh, sports washing again. Um, and this is, um, you know, potentially. Uh, I don't know if it's actually going to happen or whatever, but there's there's rumblings uh, of this. Um, so uh, hence this particular article. Uh, it's written by Daniel Story, chief football writer of I News. Uh, it's called Saudi Arabia hosting 2030 World Cup would be grim, inevitable end uh, to 15 years of sports washing. And uh, yeah, I've obviously talked about sports washing before a few times now. Um, you know, 
uh, I mean, going back to uh, Ryan, uh, he came through to talk about the Super League and then we recorded it and then it got binned like a day later. Um, so, yeah, that was immediately pointless uh, conversation. But, you know, we still kept it. Um, if you want to go spin that, go spin that. And, yeah, let's jump right into it. Let's finish, finish this episode off because Jesus Christ. This has been a heavy one. Um, just a lot, of, a ton of, a ton of reading. Uh, the most instructive meeting in Jeddah on Saturday evening was not on the dark grey canvas where Alexander Usyk and Nanny Joshua met. Sport, uh, sporting bouts flash in the moment, but are ultimately transient, soon giving way to the next great contest. Higher up in the stands of Jeddah's King Abdullah Sports City Arena, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman Al Saud uh, was joined by FIFA President Gianni Infantino. I can't believe. Like, how do you? How do you? How do you? How do you? How are you, Gianni Infantino? How how do you live that kind of life? You know what I mean. When you're just you're you're a sports dude, and you're just rubbing shoulders with just like that. You know what I mean. It's just oh yuck, crazy. Like that's what I'm saying. Like. He must have loved football at some point, you know what I mean? And then you, you, when you get to that point, your soul just has to be blackened by then, by that point. And I don't know why people would allow that. Are people that blind by capitalism? I don't know. But anyway. I, 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 sense, I sense that shit and I, I, re, I wriggle away from it. I'm just like, nope, 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 nope. Anyway, uh, morals out the window. Literally. Uh, we can presume they touched on matters of business as well as pleasure uh, and football administration more than boxing history. It represents the latest reinforcement of ties between Saudi Arabia and FIFA, led by its president's multiple visits to the country over the last two years. Infantino has also appeared in a Saudi PR video with all the predictable cringing lines you can stomach. This is something that the world should come to see. The Saudi food is delicious, very tasty, and most memorably, it is showing and breathing the greatness of this country. Infantino is dressed in a black suit and tie throughout the clips, seen ex- exiting a black car like a low-level henchman of a Bond villain. Looky- looks can be deceiving, of course, just not how we'd like us to believe. Infantino is not a mere facilitator. He's a kingmaker. The inevitable endgame here is a Saudi World Cup bid, almost certainly for 2030. FIFA's own rules disallow their showpiece tournament being hosted on the same continent twice in three editions. And so Qatar 2022 <laughs> should stop... T- Saudi thirty thirty, I love I love that, I I just love a a fucking pointless ass rule, for something that shouldn't happen in the fucking first place. <laughs> How about let's not have a tournament where six thousand people died making it. Let's let's do that, but no, it's because you can't host on the same continent twice, guys. All right, sorry, rigid rules apply. Fucking hell, and not human rights. You know, what I mean? it's just. Oh, you can't. It's it's inescapable, the comedy of it. It's just... Oh, fuck. Stupid. Anyway. Less commentary, more talky. Uh, but those uh, waters have been muddied... <laughs> fuck's sake. <laughs> by the expansion to its 48-team tournament. Hibertina has already conceded that uh, the age of the single-nation tournament is over. Of course it is. Mobile hosts would allow for Saudi Arabia to piggyback onto another bid and thus circumvent the technicalities... Of the hosting rules, how handy when everything fall, falls into place. Oh, this this is, is this is my daily brain aneurysm like happening in real time. Honestly, I can't believe it. In 2021, reports suggested that joint Saudi bid with Italy was a possibility. <laughs> uh, 
it came to naught. No shit. You're fucking right. Fuck me. Imagine that. Saudi Arabia and Italy. What the fuck are we doing? It's an absolute farce, bro. I'm sorry. Like, I get multiple cities. Like, I get, uh, um, yeah, I get multiple cities and, um, you know, multiple countries. I, I, can, I, can, I can get with multiple countries, right? You know, get like a Far East one, have like a China, Japan, South Korea, like trio. That would be cool. That would be interesting, right? Um, having like a, you know, like a UK one, that'd be cool. Like you know, England, Scotland, Wales, all that. That'd be cool, right? Fuck it, even like Spain, Portugal, France, like you know, something like that. Just you know, connections I can understand, but Italy and Saudi Arabia. Now you just take the piss. All right, now Egypt and Greece appear to be referred partners. What the fuck do Egypt and Greece have anything in common? Ah, oh, yay! Apart from heat. Fuck's sake, I know it's like not far away travel-wise, but still, stupid. Um, if you can envisage... Um, fe- Why am I logic- logicking this? Uh, but anyway, enjoying the notion of a World Cup held in a relatively small geographical re- area, uh, but based over three of its confederations, Saudi have two. It may pit them against the romantic choice of joint bid from South American countries to commemorate the centennial anniversary of the first World Cup. If you think romance automatically wins out, you haven't been paying enough attention. No fucking shit. No fucking shit. The Usyk Joshua fight, as with the World Cup, forms part of the Kingdom's sports watching surge under the Saudi their Saudi Vision 2030. It's literally a fucking market employer. Saudi Vision 2030. They literally have. A, it's literally a fucking tagline. A fucking oh goddamn. Created in 2016, it's a modernization program that aims to make Saudi Arabia a natural home for global sporting events to position itself as the co- commercial and political center of the Middle East. Uh, diversifying its economy away from oil, um, even though it's li- Saudi Aramco is literally um, the most uh, profitable company, um, and it's not even close. It's it, it literally not even close. So it's funny how you know they they're, they're literally having their cake and eating it too. It's it's great. Um, the World Cup would be the golden ticket. What better way to end the Vision 2030 era with the landmark sporting event on the planet? If Qatar had theirs, there will be a deep desire to uh, outdo them. And Saudi Arabia's reputation does need distraction. It repeatedly, repeatedly ranks towards the bottom of human rights indexes. But it doesn't matter, guys. You can't host in two in the same continent twice, all right? Can't do it. It repeatedly ranks to the uh, bottom of human rights indexes. Freedom House, an organization that campaigns on the premise that the freedom is established only when the rule of law prevails uh, and freedoms of expression, association, and belief are permitted. Awarded Saudi Arabia a score of 7 out of 100 in its latest report. Amnesty International has detailed how the Kingdom's specialised criminal court has handed down significant prison sentences to those who campaigned on human rights issues and expressed dissenting views. Only last week, a Saudi student at Leeds University who had uh, returned to her home country on holiday was jailed for 34 years for using a Twitter account and retweeting activists. The full detail on the Freedom House report is here. The link on there if you want to go peep. But the introduction alone spells out their misgivings perfectly. Quote, Saudi Arabia's absolute monarchy restricts almost all political rights and civil liberties. The regime relies on extensive surveillance. The criminalization, criminalization of dissent appeals to sectarian, uh, sectarianism uh, and ethnicity. Women and religious minorities face extensive discrimination in law and in practice. Working conditions for a large expatriate uh, labor force are often exploitative, unquote. We have heard these epithets before, during and since Qatar's successful bid to host the upcoming World Cup. They often provoke devil's advocate argument from the general public. How can sports washing work if we suddenly hear so much about it and didn't before? But that slightly misses the point. 
Negative media coverage is a small price to pay for the kudos of hosting a major sporting event and further opportunities it provides for their normalised presence on the world stage. Saudi Arabia's willingness to risk the backlash follows Qatar's own lead. They believe, with some evidence, the hosting World Cup will prove to be a success despite negative press coverage. The commercial and pro- uh, political opportunities are simply too big to ignore. Soft power is attractive power. And the negative stories will soon dissipate. They reason. For proof of that, look at the reaction to Newcastle United's likely, uh, likely signing of Alexander Isak. Expecting Newcastle fans not to be excited about the club breaking their transfer record is too much to ask. Most probably. But then that's exactly the point. These owners can play on emotions and football demands greater loyalty from its followers than any other cultural entity. They know what they're doing. How many have I got left? Okay, two paragraphs. Because I want to get... I want one more point based on that and then I'll kill this show. Um, You can make the case, as FIFA president does, that he is merely helping to force cultural change in Saudi Arabia. Alright, bruv. What point is there keeping them on the outside? He may figure. But that doesn't really wash. (laughs) <laughs> I see we did there. Uh, hosting the World Cup will to be a reward for significant systemic progress from minority rights and freedom of expression, not an attempted persuasion. Yeah, don't be the horses following the cart, right? Don't make it a carrot. Like, or, or don't wait. Don't make it the um. Yeah, don't make don't make it a a a a remedy for their ills. Make it a carrot so they actually improve their fucking shit. Like, you want the World Cup? Do this. Literally, do that. And if they don't want to do it, alright, no, you got hundreds of more fucking countries to pick from. Fuck. Anyway, now Saudi Arabia is aiming to follow the path of Qatar, or Qatar, uh, plowed uh, the FIFA charm offensive with the emphasis on offensive. The movie trailers that talk up the benefits without mentioning those who sit uh, hidden from view. The washing of a reputation in public view that nobody appears to able, uh, able to contest because money speaks more powerfully than truth. Sports can, sport can change the world. Infantino is often pay, at pains to repeat. It can also provide gold-plated wallpaper to cover the cracks. And this is exactly what happened to the IOC when they were talking about China and the Beijing in uh, Beijing Winter Olympics, even though they have two fucking days of snow. They were cha- and talking about changing the world. We, we Sport can change the world. Fuck off, Thomas Back, you bitch made. Take that money and shut up. Like, just, I hate, I'm sick of this people, sick of these fucking people talking about this shit. Stalking change the world. And I believe it. I personally believe it can. But not these fuckers. Just taking money. You're just taking money, bruv. Don't act like, they're talking like fucking politicians, man. Bad faith. And that pisses me off. That really does fuck me off to no fucking end. It really really jars me. And the last one I wanted to make, um, putting a pin in the Newcastle thing. Um, uh, You know, footballers demanding greater loyalty from his followers. You know. Um, It's it's facts. And this is why I don't like to... I I don't like to bathe my identity in it. I don't like to bathe my identity in in a sports team or uh, specifically... Maybe that's why I like athletics a lot, um, and probably more than most, because of how I I like to support individuals, and obviously you know Team GB and all that, right? But eh, that, that's you know <laughs> I've interviewed I've interviewed people that aren't UK athletes, and I like them and I support them as well. So you know, it is what it is, right? I'm I'm objective um, in some cases, right, and subjective in others, right? I'm not perfect, but the f- you fuckers, you fuckers. 
um, where your life is Newcastle or any team and 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 they can do no wrong or they do do wrong and you just don't fuck it either don't fucking care or um or, or once you get like three games in a row of winning you completely forget about you know uh player a being uh you know a uh, potential uh, alleged rapist or whatever right shit like that for example uh, you know just throwing a topic out there right People are just so fickle, and it really pisses me off. Like we really need to wake the fuck up. It's 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 sign. It's really it's really putting me off ed, ed, anything sport. Honestly, like just I I I I don't care. I don't care. I will kill off my love for anything. Um, and and you know it's just. That's probably um a very exaggerative way of saying anything of being defiant. But hey, man, I can't change the world with this. I can't. I can't. I can't get in Gianni Infantino's ear um, and say you, you, you're being a, you're being bitch made. Um, you're, you're walking in bad faith here. Um, use that. Use the use, use the World Cup as a carrot by all means, so they actually improve on their fucking shit. But don't just give it to them with the hope that they do so. Like, just stop, stop being a bitch. Like really, stop being a bitch about it. Um, but anyway, we have passed a hundred uh one hour twenty. I will leave it there because if I go on, I just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna continue for another ten minutes. Alright. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth End Podcast Network, I'm a Charlie Taylor and this has been a gargantuan edition of What's Good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. You can find his link in the full show notes and your music. Uh, thanks to your music for the bit to use the track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy High, friend of E5E, e, Nappy High, uh, for the ability to use Charismatic for Neat and Lou. Uh, you can find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. Interview drop in on Friday. So tomorrow, the day after this episode drops, gone interview. And also, it's going to be combined with. Uh, my photography um, I'll throw those links uh, in conjunction with each other in the full show notes of the interview itself um, and on the photography post I do have a photography site now if you do not know it's crt-photography.carbonmade.com but regardless of if you fuck with it or not um, I'll put the link on the interview uh, full show notes and with that said I hope you have a good week. I'll try to do the same. But until next time, take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.